Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 9 Secret Identity I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel and those excited by the anticipated DC Cinematic Universe. Today we're looking at the secret identity, what's being protected, how it was maintained in Man of Steel, and how it can be preserved going forwards. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that will lead us into the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who loved Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. The secret or dual identity is one of the classic elements of the Superman mythos and in myth in general. A lot of criticism for Superman in general, outside of Man of Steel, and in Man of Steel particular, stems from the implausibility or maintenance of the secret identity. Today we're going to tackle a bunch of those protests. We'll start with Smallville, then talk about Lois, and then the government. Then we'll finish with some ways that they can be handled going forwards. An opening disclaimer, I may seem overly pedantic about enumerating things in this episode, but it's important because this is one of the topics where critics, the general audiences, and even Superman fans have a lot of trouble checking their assumptions and preconceived notions at the door. It's important to highlight whether a judgment is coming from the work itself or from the viewer's expectation from outside the piece. With that out of the way, I'm going to start with a lightning round overview. I'm going to fast attack the questions about this topic and just give short answers, and then we'll show my work with the rest of the podcast to explain the answers. Here we go. Question. Why would the government not pursue the identity? Answer. They're willing to compromise for the sake of more important interests. Question. Did Lois confirm to anyone that she knows Superman's identity? Answer. We don't know. Woodburn and Swanwick comment that she knows, and that goes unchallenged on screen. Question. Did Lois's first article compromise Superman's identity? Answer. No. Question. Did Lois's second article blow up Superman's identity? Answer. No. It went unpublished, and it contained no substantive clues. Her research, however, could be an issue. Question. Did Lois reveal Superman's secret identity by yelling Clark at his farm? Answer, no. It was already necessarily revealed to get the police to drive her to the Kent farm. Question, did Superman expose his identity by giving his ship to the military? Answer, no. He delivered it to Northcom. They didn't retrieve it from his farm. Question, did Superman expose his identity by giving his age? Answer, no. He only indicated that he had been amongst humanity for 33 years. Not that he necessarily is 33 years old. For all they know, he came from the 18,000-year-old scout ship or in another ship like Zod. 
Frankly, they don't have any more information than they could have already estimated from his appearance anyways. Only in speaking with Swanwick did he say that he grew up on Earth, and in Kansas specifically. And we don't know whether Swanwick passes on any of Superman's disclosures. Question. Did surrendering give away his identity? Answer. Doubtless, it provides plenty of data in the form of his appearance, biometrics, voice print, etc., but not in and of itself. Question. Did Superman expose his identity by saying that he's from Kansas? Answer. No, he made the disclosure only to Swanwick. Once again, a quick reminder, this is the lightning round. We're just running through the answers and questions, and we will be explaining them further through the rest of the podcast. All right. Question. Did the Battle of Smallville give away Superman's identity? Answer. No. It began after Lois's escape pod crashed in Smallville. To the world at large, there is no special significance to ascribe to Smallville, any more than there is to Metropolis or the Indian Ocean as targets. The battle was merely precipitated by Zod's efforts to recapture Lois and Kal-El, as far as the world is concerned. Question. Did the kiss give away Superman's identity? Answer. No. Eyewitnesses are unreliable. However, if it did, it only did to individuals motivated to protect and maintain the secret. Question. Does Perry know? Answer. They can go either way. Goyer suggests that Perry may know. Question. Does Suicide Squad change things? Answer. Slightly. It makes it all but certain that the government can get the information. However, it doesn't change the fact that it isn't readily actionable intelligence. Question. What technologies can help keep the identity? Answer. Check out our episodes one and two of the podcast as we went over those topics back then. Question. How can the government help keep the identity? Answer. They do that all the time for their own agents operations, and witnesses in witness protection. Question. How can the Daily Planet help keep the identity? Answer. Much in the way that Lois is an ally and secret keeper, if all of his immediate co-workers are also allies and secret keepers, it makes the secret identity something much easier to maintain. Question. How can Lex Luthor help keep the identity? Answer. See the Dark Knight. Alternatively, consider that Luthor wants Superman to think that he is human. And question. Can the trope survive modern reality? Answer. It seems not without a lot of help. Okay, that was our lightning round, and uh, we'll go over those right now. The first part is, let's talk about what the secret is, okay? Let's outline the information of what's being protected. And the first part is that extraterrestrials exist, and or that paranormal abilities exist. Uh, The second part is that Clark is one of these extraterrestrials, and or that Clark has these abilities. And finally, that Superman is Clark. Now, when we do an interest balancing test later, it's important to think about some of the root assumptions underlying the idea of a secret identity. Upholding it is not an absolute when there are other interests that trump the interests that the secret is intending to preserve. So what is the secret meant to protect? Well, first it's meant to protect Clark. It's meant to directly protect him from threats against him. For example, attempting to capture or study him or attack him at home. It indirectly protects him from threats against his interests and his loved ones, for example, threatening to take away his private life, his sanity, his attachment to humans. The secret identity helps protect Clark's family, both directly and indirectly from the loss of Clark. In Man of Steel, the secret is meant to protect the world from itself, it being not able to handle the idea of 
hidden ETs or extraterrestrials. The idea of extraterrestrials challenges many of the world's assumptions. The information could inflame humanity's prejudices. The pursuit of this information could harm Clark. And humanity has a bad track record of dealing with quote-unquote others. Humanity's bad behavior then may lead to it being judged by Clark or his people eventually. From the perspective of Jonathan Kent trying to keep this secret, we don't know the full scope of Clark's powers, and we don't know the intentions of Clark's people. You'll note that this is a twist and an introduction to the mythos, since Superman has traditionally existed in realities that basically gloss over his alien origins. The secret is meant to protect third parties who could be endangered by having the information, and I'm sure there's other interests that I'm forgetting or not explicitly spelling out, but the general gist is that if disclosing the secret wouldn't run afoul of these interests, or if there's an interest that trumps all of them, then it's okay to disclose that piece of information or the secret. So once again, it's not an absolute value that must be upheld at all costs, right? So let's start with Smallville. Who in Smallville knows? And obviously Clark's parents do. Who else knows? Well, if we went by tradition, by the time Clark leaves Smallville, Probably Lana Lang and Pete Ross know. However, within the scope of the film, we can't and shouldn't assume that everybody knows. Let's be careful not to engage in cognitive bias. There's a risk of employing either like hindsight bias or the curse of knowledge or personal attribution bias or typical mind fallacy. These are all different kinds of cognitive biases where we come into it with knowledge or expectation and then we assign that to the thing that we're evaluating from a less than objective perspective. For example, we like to ascribe Smallville special significance. Just because we know what it means doesn't mean that the world in the story does. To the world, Smallville is just as random a target as Metropolis or the Indian Ocean. Diegetically, there is no significance to Metropolis as a target, at least not to Clark, who hasn't set up roots there yet. We simply don't know why it was selected. It could have been an optimal target, either militarily or for the terraforming process. It could have been a convenient one, or perhaps it was retribution against Lois, but since no reason was given, it is not necessary that we ascribe to it the meaning that Metropolis holds outside the film. Similarly, there's no reason that Smallville couldn't have been attacked because that was where Lois's escape pod landed. There are small issues of timing, but not ones that the world or the military would be aware of. The Battle of Smallville does not, for the world, mean a battle in Superman's hometown. They just aren't privy to that information. It doesn't mean anything more to the military just because of General Swanwick either, but more on that later. So let's get back to what Smallville knows. Before the Black Zero event or the BZE, there's probably a general awareness of something. Pete's mom verifies that there's an awareness of paranormal activities surrounding Clark. However, it's ascribed to the divine rather than Clark. This is fairly plausible. Even today, believing in angels and miracles hovers around nearly 80% of all Americans. In the early 90s in rural Kansas, I think it's fair to say it would have been higher. Thus, the secret is preserved because it's a secret more about God than Clark. A divine miracle is not particularly confronting in a society already predisposed to believe, and it's not worth spreading for those who wouldn't believe. In other words, 
it's as likely to impact you as any other religiously based alleged miracle. Even if you believe, you're unlikely to find it life-changingly remarkable since you already believe miracles are possible. And if you don't believe, you're unlikely to take much stock in the allegations. Although it's mentioned that Clark is isolated as a child, his parents wouldn't let him play with other kids, and it could be surmised that Whitney singles out Clark for bullying because he's odd, it's not explicit that these are because of an awareness of Clark's abilities, which might be a little contradictory. I don't know that I would want to provoke somebody who's been rumored to push a bus, unless I didn't believe the rumor. Nonetheless, Clark has a track record. Something weird happened at age 9, something weird happened at age 13, and we have indications that weird things happened in between. But after the bus, Jonathan Clark have their heart-to-heart with the major revelation and he likely lays low for the remainder of his time in Smallville. As Clark says at the age of 17, he's tired of playing it safe, meaning that he was safe for the intervening years. So there was a record there, but its import likely faded until the BZE. This means likely, contrary to tradition, Lana Lang and Pete Ross do not explicitly know Clark's secret prior to the BZE. I'm going to posit that as an explanation for why it seems that Pete directs Lois to the Kent farm, if indeed that's what he does. We don't know. Now, first off, the scene is ambiguous and one-sided. We never hear Pete's response to Lois's questions, and since she pops up on Martha's doorstep next, it's easy to assume that he gave Clark up. However, you have to consider the context of the question. Lois already knows about the bus incident. It's unlikely that she didn't already know about Clark at that point. Pete could have clammed up, and she still would have gotten to Martha based on the bus story alone. However, if Pete did talk, it can be explained by him not having explicit knowledge of Clark's secret. In other words, he's not betraying Clark because he doesn't know that Clark has a secret. I tend to fall into the camp that Pete doesn't know, and this is because Clark seems to be portrayed as largely isolated. When he recounts a memory demonstrating the many sides of good and ill of humanity, it's of a former bully lending him a hand not an intimate moment where he was able to pour his heart out and share his secret with Pete Ross. When Clark seeks counsel, he goes to a priest rather than to a friend. Incidentally, there's a good explanation for that and why Clark doesn't go to see Martha, Lois, or Jor-El, but that's another episode. So this is all before the BZE, but what about during it? Well, in the costume, there's a brief wordless exchange and there appears to be recognition between Clark and Pete Ross. So we can speculate that he's aware thereafter. Well, who else in Smallville knows? There's the common criticism of Lois that typically goes like this. Lois is foolish for calling out Clark's name while he's in costume at the Kent farm in front of the police. She's compromising his secret identity. Well, is she? If she arrived wordlessly at the Kent farm, does that somehow preserve Clark Kent's identity any better? Police officers are not chauffeurs. They don't just drive you wherever you like to go on your say-so. Lois must have convinced them, and when she did, she had to direct them to the Kent farm. So I'm skeptical that saying Clark added any material information that they weren't already aware of. Let's quickly go back over the unseen sequence of events to explain 
why the police would drive Lois where she wants to go. So after the escape pod falls from the sky, creating an explosion and a plume of black smoke, Superman takes off. The officer may or may not have seen Superman, but he definitely saw something because his lights are flashing when Lois hails him down. He arrives on scene and he sees a smoldering pile of alien wreckage. Zod's 24-hour ultimatum is still ringing in his ear. The deadline, which has since passed, and that timeline is another episode, suggests that the mysterious Kal-El did indeed surrender himself. Ten seconds on a smartphone or the patrol car's laptop would verify Lois's identity and her connection to Kal-El. Rather than somebody who needs to be sobered up in the drunk tank, or taken away for psychiatric evaluation. Of course, even if she says she has information for saving the world, why wouldn't the officer take her into town for the higher-ups to sort this out? This may be above his pay grade after all. Well, as Lois is telling the story and as it's being verified by the officer, the Battle of Smallville breaks out. Dispatch likely sends out an all-points bulletin that U.S. Northern Command has ordered all law enforcement to stay out of the way. Now, Lois is motivated to avoid downtown even apart from that danger. She can't afford to be stalled and doesn't want to be disappeared again. Police headquarters didn't eyewitness the escape pod like this officer did. And if Northcom gets involved, she may get quarantined and interrogated rather than be allowed to take the immediate actions necessary. So Lois needs to get this information to Clark at all speed. And the only rendezvous point that she knows that he'll go to is the Kent farm. As we discussed at the beginning of this episode, there are many interests protected by the secret identity, but none of them which matter if the world ends. For Lois, there's no point in standing on pretense. She's hearing it over dispatch too. The Battle of Smallville is just the opening salvo to the extermination of all humankind. When you weigh the interests in preserving Clark's identity in a town that already knows and remembers him as weird against all of humankind dying, there's no point in contriving some way of protecting the secret identity. Right now, the fate of the world literally rests in your credibility, and there's no better way to be credible than to present the truth. Out in necessity and persuasiveness, she asks to be taken to the Kent farm. And for the officer, suddenly it clicks and it all makes sense. Kent, as in Clark Kent, the boy from the bus incident, and all those other times. Clark Kent is Kal-El, the alien who gave himself up to the threatening Zod. The Kents were good people, so the police take Lois where she wants to go. So it's under this situation and in this context that the police are willing to take Lois wherever she wants to go during a clear crisis and under this context where she is screaming Clark Clark. What she is doing is completely reasonable under those circumstances. Now I just want to disclaim real quick that that is just one possible interpretation of events. It's not necessarily what explicitly happened, but for something to be stupid or for something to be a plot hole, you can't come up with a reasonable explanation to fill in the gaps. And here I feel that that explanation is more than reasonable or plausible, thus making Lois's actions reasonable and not foolish. So now some people in Smallville know or likely suspect that Clark Kent is Superman. What incentives do they have to keep that information to themselves? Well, for starters, we've got loyalty and gratitude. Objectively, Superman saved the Earth, which includes Smallville. Despite the destruction caused during the Battle of Smallville, Superman fought alongside American troops, and when the states are ranked by enlistment, Kansas is routinely in the top third. Depending on how small Smallville really is, they may personally know Clark and Martha and know them to be good people, and so they justifiably protect their own. Of course, even if it were merely a matter of self-interest, well, consider the fact that Lois, a famous 
Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, was disappeared on the mere suspicion of evidence. I think that that's pretty newsworthy, and I think that's something she'll be happy to report loudly on afterwards. So when the men in black start asking questions, your average citizen is going to have incentive to disclaim having any knowledge. Now, if it isn't the U.S. government that's asking, then it's somebody who thinks they can take Superman on. And that means a dangerous person and possibly a crazy person. And if you're not loyal and you don't hold a high opinion about Superman, what about him himself? Uh, Nolan's The Dark Knight actually lampshades the issue pretty well with the accountant who attempts to blackmail. First, there's accountability to the crazy billionaire who beats up criminals. You're hoping he doesn't take reprisal on you. In the case of Superman, a being that can literally stop an alien invasion and who is completely unaccountable and who can disappear you into space you're hoping he doesn't get mad at you. Second, they show the danger of advertising that knowledge. The accountant became a target for the Joker. If someone is powerful enough and evil enough to try to tackle Superman, might they not simply extract that information from you without your consent or just compensation. Lastly, we see that the accountant kept silent out of gratitude when Bruce Wayne saves him with the sports car after attempting to betray his employer. Now here, aside from saving the planet, I think Clark is going to be in Smallville after the BZE helping Martha rebuild. And that might provide some off-screen opportunity to, to forge new packs with the people of Smallville in the process. Now, some are going to object and say Lois's interviewees gave up that information. What's changed? But you've got to remember Remember the time and the context of those questions. That was before the world knew that there was a Superman or that he was an alien protector. At that time, Lois was approaching them as a fellow rescuee with her own story about a mutual guardian angel. So the disclosures were to a friendly party about something of no particular import or relevance. However, after Superman's debut, there would be little doubt in their minds who their protector was and whether the inquiring parties have as benevolent intentions as Lois did. It changes the context of the question from sharing a nice story with a fellow fan into knowing that you're betraying your guardian to a hostile. Totally different situations. I'd like to talk more about the Clark and Lois relationships, the timetables, and the differences between this and the love triangle tradition, but I think this episode is already jam-packed, so that's another episode. So the government is another large figure in Man of Steel, and possibly BVS. Superman's interactions with the government potentially provides them with a lot of data about himself. There's his surrender and interrogation at Northcom, his participation in the Battle of Smallville, the supply of his ship to Northcom, and the conversation with General Swanwick in the drone scene. During the course of those encounters, the government learns that Superman can fly, is super strong, can see through walls, find disappeared journalists, is generally cooperative to a degree, and it's suggested that he's been amongst humanity for 33 years. But it doesn't mean necessarily that he's 33 years old. They have his image, his speech patterns, his word choice, etc. In his conversation with Swanwick, he says that he grew up in Kansas and aligns himself with American interests. So throughout these events, detractors may criticize Superman for not being more careful with his secret identity. They argue that if the government didn't already know, they now know based on Superman's disclosures. Therefore, Superman was foolish in disclosing so much about himself. Now I disagree. The above criticism assumes that Superman's disclosures made the uncovering of his identity easier than it would have been if he said nothing. However, it forgets that they already 
have an easy avenue into uncovering his identity. Swanwick says, now you revealed your identity to Miss Lane over there. In the deleted interrogation of Lois Lane, we don't know whether she disclaims knowing Superman's identity or not, but clearly Swanwick believes that she knows. Therefore, if push comes to shove, and they absolutely need to obtain Superman's identity, they can always get the information from her. While data mining, interrogation, and investigation is more innocuous than violating Lois Lane's civil rights, it's definitely slower, more expensive, and more work. So why not take the easiest path? Well, it's because the American government has interests too. And one of those interests is attempting to maintain its own integrity, values, and sense of justice. In another nation, or in other hands, there would be no hesitation to forcibly extract that information from an unwilling journalist. However, the fact that, despite a debatable holding, her civil rights were not further violated suggests that Man of Steel reflects the more public and decent aspects of the U.S. government. This is a government that follows ground rules. Now, we can speculate that the Suicide Squad will reflect the dark underbelly, but that's not confirmed either. Uh, the Suicide Squad could be a private agency when it's all said and done. We'll talk about that later. So if we've got a government that's following ground rules, then there is reason to believe that they will stop investigating Superman's secret identity after Superman speaks with Swanwick. Even if the government is interested in knowing Superman's secret identity, it has other priorities which may trump that interest. The government routinely has to balance interests and tolerate matters that are against one interest, but is in service to a larger one. A trite example, the U.S. may have an interest in not being criticized by its citizens, but has a greater interest in promoting liberty and free speech, so it has to tolerate a degree of criticism to serve that larger interest. Or the U.S. might have interests against a foreign government's human rights violations, but it tolerates it to a degree because it has a greater interest in peace and avoiding warfare or military intervention, perhaps taking half measures like economic sanctions. So there are reasons to tolerate Superman to a degree. The interrogation scene is the last time the topic of his identity is broached before the drone scene. The government knows that to Superman, Lois Lane is off limits. He surrendered under the condition that she be set free, and she was with him throughout the Black Zero event. They also know that he does not want to or intend to disclose his identity to him. So they know that that's against his interests, but they don't know to what degree. The alien volunteered his secret existence, his life, his freedom, his ship, his command key, his legacy, and his people for the planet. So he might prefer that they don't know, but with a spirit of such volunteerism, it's not clear that he would object if they found out. He trusts at least one other with the secret after all, and after serving together as brothers in arms, he might not mind. So the government pushes the boundaries by surveilling Superman with the drones. Superman then obviously pushes back and explains, this isn't okay. This is over the line. So the scene with Swanwick is the beginning of talks to discuss the terms of Superman's assistance and their relationship. This is a slightly more reasonable approach than Superman making a public statement or debut through the press. Why? The effect of any statement that Superman makes would be undercut if not tacitly approved by the government. A public declaration of, I'm here to help, is muddled if the authority immediately retorts, not on American soil, you illegal alien. So instead... By starting a dialogue with Washington, Superman can work out parameters of their relationship. My terms, as he puts it. 
So when he or they address the public, they are in accord. Now, obviously, Washington itself is not monolithic, so it's doubtful that it has accord within itself, but it's still the right approach to coordinate with the authority rather than trying to blindside it through the people. Now, incidentally, the facts that Superman discloses to Swanwick do not necessarily have to be shared with anyone else. Superman makes it clear that he is trusting Swanwick to speak on his behalf, and that extension of trust is characteristic of Superman throughout this film and in the Superman tradition. For example, the kryptonite ring, as discussed in episode 7. Swanwick may appreciate that the information was offered as an extension of trust rather than actionable intelligence. In other words, I'm telling you something that you can use against me, but I'm trusting you not to. It's similar to the gift of the kryptonite ring, which is, I'm giving you something you can use against me, but trusting you not to unless you determine the situation requires it. There is plenty of precedent both in comics and in real life of parties being willfully ignorant of a fact in order to maintain plausible deniability or other interests. A great common example is Commissioner Gordon, who has all the clues, tools, and ability to determine Batman's identity, but for all intents and purposes, maintains that he does not know it. Swanwick may respect the trust extended to him and keep Superman's disclosures to himself and Major Ferris. So to review, why would the government forego its pursuit of the identity after Superman makes his position clear? Well, there's a public relations issue. The U.S. military just saved the world in a joint mission with Superman. Of course they're going to play up their role in saving the planet. However, there's no way that they can disclaim Superman's participation and contribution. So do they suggest that they were cooperating with an enemy entity? Or is it in their interest to show that Superman is a benevolent ally? For them to maintain that narrative, they have to remain on decent terms with Superman. There's a national security aspect. Now, whatever threat or compromise of security Superman may represent, in his conversations with Swanwick, he aligns his origins and interests in America. Is there any reason that the government would seek to change that? If Superman feels that his interests are threatened by the government, there are any number of foreign governments and enemy states that would welcome the demigod with open arms to become a citizen and reside in their borders. Aggravating Superman turns him from a domestic ally into a foreign threat. There's the fact that Superman is the only anti-extraterrestrial incursion protocol that we know about. We've already talked about this in episode two, but basically humanity knows it's not alone in the universe anymore. And Superman is your only proven defense against alien invasion. Until you have your own defenses, you don't want to do anything that would make Superman think twice the next time he's confronted with the question of whether humanity is worth saving. And as we've already discussed, there's little upside. If they want the information, they can already get it from Lois Lane. Moreover, the only thing that this information might provide them is perhaps some leverage on or against Superman. But Superman has already made it clear that he refuses to be controlled. So attempting to leverage the identity would only aggravate Superman and potentially cause him to sever ties with the identity, and thus his attachments to America and humanity as a whole might be severed. The main thing tethering this unaccountable demigod is his feelings towards humanity. It is a massive gamble to think that he would rather be controlled by those feelings than to just cut the tether. So it makes perfect sense for the government to abandon the inquiry into the identity after Superman speaks with Swanwick. On the flip side of things, it makes perfect sense for Superman to disclose information that they could obtain anyways. He offers them as symbols of trust and reassurance while making his boundaries clear. Whatever information he gave couldn't stop them from getting his identity if they absolutely wanted to get it 
from Lois, and he always has the contingency of changing identities or moving. So it makes sense for Superman to be more forthcoming to a degree and put them at ease, the same way that he allowed them to cuff him, but at the same time insisting on them not crossing that line, the same way that he broke those handcuffs and said, let's put our cards on the table. What this all boils down to is that the public face of the government may agree to terms that includes ceasing investigation into Superman's identity, not acting on that information even if it's uncovered, and even actively assisting Superman in maintaining his identity. Now, none of that is clear for shadow entities like the Suicide Squad, but because they're not introduced or even suggested in Man of Steel, the film itself is internally consistent. And even if it turns out that there were shadow elements completely willing to bend or break the rules, the intelligence is not actionable for the reasons that we've already discussed and not altogether different from what already exists in the traditional DCU, where, for example, Batman's secret identity was more or less known amongst the covert government agency community. The information isn't terribly actionable because secret intelligence held by a secret agency isn't valuable if everybody knows it or if it compromises the covert nature of the agency. It isn't actionable in a way that would promote their interests, and it threatens to divorce Superman from humanity. The main thing keeping him in check is his belief that he is human at heart. Now, if the government is actively assisting Superman in maintaining his identity, they could provide quite a bit of help along those lines. The government already does so in a number of ways for its own covert operatives, spies, and intelligence operations. A great example is WITSEC, uh, Witness Security, or perhaps better known as Witness Protection. Or if you've watched Argo, you've seen the elaborate lengths that the government may go in order to maintain a cover identity. So we've talked about Smallville, we've talked about Lois, and we've talked about the government, but of course there are other entities and reasons for wanting to know Superman's identity. You've got his detractors, enemies, or criminals that may want to attack him. You've got those who want to hold him accountable to the law or civil suits. In other words, they want to sue him. There are those who are curious. There are those with scientific interests. There are those fascinated by celebrity. There are those with economic interests in selling the information to any of the above. However, nearly all of the details that we've discussed are purely in the hands of the government. So within the scope of Man of Steel, the identity is still reasonably protected. What all these other parties represent is difficulty in maintaining the secret going forwards. Now to discuss this, we're going to have to make some assumptions to limit the scope of possibilities. So Here's a couple of assumptions that we're going to use to guide our argument. First, we're going to assume for simplicity's sake that after Man of Steel, everyone that does know or could know decides absolutely to keep the secret or not pursue it for the reasons that we've already stated. This saves us from descending into further discussion of whether they could or would keep the secret. So, for example, the government, or Perry White, will not act against Superman's interests, and may even assist. Smallville will keep Clark's secret, and that includes the police that drove Lois to the Kent farm. Second, let's assume a degree of realism, except for what's introduced in Man of Steel itself. In other words, a world that's not suspended by tropes, because those would allow us to hand wave the issue without any analysis whatsoever. A shorthand test for this is whether you believe that the explanation would work on you. 
Third, no new powers. No facial blurring or remodeling. No super hypnotism. No amnesia kiss. And so on. Fourth, we've got to assume that Zod's broadcast, which states, For reasons unknown, he has chosen to keep his existence a secret from you. He will have made efforts to blend in. He will look like you. This broadcast tends to dispel the hand wave that everybody assumes that Superman doesn't have a secret identity because he doesn't wear a mask. That's also assumption too, because it's not realistic that everyone would make the same unequivocal assumption, particularly when Zod broadcast makes it clear that in the past, Superman has blended in. I know that this is a traditional hand wave and it's difficult for some Superman fans to let go of, but against the hard light of reality, it doesn't work. Now fifth, we have to assume that Superman intends to be a public figure, so people are going to see what he looks like, he's gonna get caught on film, that's gonna be a part of the public record. And sixth, Clark intends to have an ordinary life in Metropolis. So he's not going to be a recluse. He's going to get caught on film. People are going to see him as well. Seventh, there's an unknown amount of functional Kryptonian technology in the world. So those are our seven assumptions. Everyone that does know is going to keep the secret. We want to stick to reality. No new powers. People don't automatically assume that he doesn't have a secret identity. Superman intends to be a public figure and Clark is going to be out there as well. And finally, there is some functional Kryptonian technology in the world. Even with the assist of some of those assumptions, honestly, I'm still stumped. And apparently, I'm not alone in recognizing the issue. In a July 2013 interview with Empire, the interviewer kind of noticed the issue and asked Goyer about it. Here's the clip from the interview. And jumping back to the um, alter ego Clark Kent Superman, when he puts his glasses on, he's a different person type thing. Obviously, we sidestepped it in this movie. You did, and it, it quite quite delicately, but come the end, you're trapped, I feel. Maybe not trapped, I mean, obviously, you're the professional you mean, writer. You mean if we do another movie? Yeah, because he's in a room full of journalists. He's been, you know, the savior of the universe. How do you dance the dance? It, 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 we were conscious of the fact that, it, obviously, we, it, it's not an issue with Lois moving forward. She's his secret keeper, and, and part of the fun for us, if we do move forward, is, is they will be involved in a real relationship and she'll be she would be part of that maintaining that secret yeah and maintaining that. that fiction um but you know it it will part of the fun of doing things like this though um and chris has always said this is sometimes you write yourself into a corner but you have to follow it to its logical conclusion and then see if you can figure a way out of it so i think that perry's not an idiot either perry saw perry knows they have a connection Perry saw them kiss, you know, at the end of the film, we're very aware of that. And so one would presume that moving forward, Perry would say, what's the deal here? You know, um, so if the film is embraced over the next few weeks and, and we formalize things, um, that's something we plan to follow up on. Sometimes you write yourself into a corner, but you have to follow it through to its logical conclusion 
and see if you can figure a way out. So Goyer acknowledges that it's something that they have to find a way out of. But I don't have anything that elegantly solves that issue definitively or reliably. I know at this point that some of you are upset and pulling some of the traditional justifications out and offering them up. And in brief, I imagine they mostly fall under the following. First, you have that universal assumption that a maskless Superman doesn't need or have a secret identity. And a variation of that is the idea that Luther refuses to accept that Superman could be Clark Kent, even if that revelation were thrust upon him. The second common hand wave is variations on acting. So he changes his appearance, his mannerisms, his voice and behavior, and somehow this acting is more or less foolproof. Another common comic booky solution is the simultaneous appearance. We've got androids and shapeshifters and holograms and super speed and all sorts of other ways of peering simultaneously with Clark Kent to hopefully dispel the notion that they are one in the same. Now, because I'm running long, I'm not going to break down each one of these on why they, in my opinion, don't work in a fully realized and realistic universe. I would just implore you to apply the the reality test of whether these would work on you on a day-to-day basis if you were to employ them on, say, a significant other. If a maskless superhero were to appear in the real world and Zod makes an announcement that at one point he did try to blend in and appear just like the rest of us, I don't think it's fair to say that the entire planet every individual and every person in the world would say yeah no chance no possibility that that guy has a secret identity still right (laughs) as far as the acting is concerned unquestionably you can fool people briefly unquestionably you can fool strangers you can fool passerbys and even casual acquaintances and even close and intimate people occasionally in a short or brief instance in an anecdotal moment and a few times but on a day-to-day basis i don't think it's going to work i've never watched a movie where no matter how much the actor has transformed themselves short of complete prostheses and special effects actually completely changing their face short of that where i didn't recognize the actor you can suspend your sense of belief you can be taken away by the moment and the storytelling and transported to a place where they embody that other person for a period of time but it's not a permanent effect it's not like you're confused and can't say that you wouldn't recognize that this actor is that actor in two different performances. So even really effective, really dramatic acting, I don't think it's enough to distinguish the two. The simultaneous appearances. Again, it's similar to the acting issue in the sense that both of these individuals look exactly alike, right? Or both of these individuals look very uncannily similar. And if it was my loved one, if it was my coworker, somebody that I see every day, that's really going to bug me. (laughs) Even if there's completely plausible explanation or reasons and saying, you know, sometimes people look alike. These two guys look uncannily alike. And here's the thing, if they appear at the same time in a comic book universe, then you're like, oh, well, of course they couldn't possibly be the same person, right? I shook his hand and I shook his hand. And that means they're mutually exclusive. These two individuals can't possibly be the same person. But you have to understand that in a real universe, one of these guys represents a physics reality breaking extraterrestrial, right? So the rules of reason and boundaries and practicality have been broken. It's a 
a massive assumption to say, just because I saw this these two guys together, they couldn't be the same person. For all you know, that's within the power set or the ability of this crazy physics-defying alien. Just because they appear together in the same location or same place is not going to suddenly cause me to say, well, you know what, they bear a striking resemblance, but I'm just going to say that they're different people. I think that's going to still nag on your brain. I think you're still going to have questions. It's going to increase the scrutiny. And the more scrutiny that you apply to the situation, the more the disguise is going to fall apart. Now, of course, for most of the things that I've talked about are a strong and good justification for why they did not maintain the trope or maintain the tradition of Lois not being able to see through or around the disguise. I think Man of Steel is justifiably skeptical of that tradition and exchange gives us a Lois that is a comrade from the beginning and helps in the formation of his character. And so in a reality and in a storytelling world where they're already skeptical of the disguise, the question is, can you maintain it? And there may be more creative or brilliant people out there that know of a way to do so. I hope that the filmmakers are among them. But if you have an idea or if you have a way that you think that Clark can maintain his identity under the same level of scrutiny that traditionally Lois would put him under, definitely share it in the comments and definitely read it out in a future podcast and give you full credit for it because this is something that's definitely stumping me. I think the main out that I can think of, aside from sort of ignoring the problem, hand-waving it, or sort of dialing back on the reality, the main way that they can sort of fix it within the reality of the story is to make uh, the Daily Planet all co-conspirators in this secret identity. Uh, Because if it's the people that you routinely interact with who are supporting this secret identity, then most of these issues are less apparent, and then you can rely on some of the softer or less effective techniques just for those day-to-day encounters with casual acquaintances and and complete strangers on the street. Of course, that is in and of itself another issue. Modern society is just loaded with cameras. Uh, You've got closed circuit television on every corner. Everybody's got a smartphone. It's surveillance all the time, 24-7. And Clark decides to step into a major metropolitan city with uh, extraordinary population density. So he is going to get caught on camera. There's no escaping it. And at the same time, Superman is the biggest story in the world. His very existence changes reality. So if I'm somebody who takes a snapshot and I see somebody on the street who looks uncannily like the number one celebrity on the planet, I'm going to draw some collections. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to have some questions. I'm going to, I'm going to be curious. And um, you may find that post on Reddit the next day, right? So all that said, there are plenty of creative techniques for making this less of an issue. If we dial back the reality a little, or if we ignore it, or do a lampshading scene where the disguise works in a certain context, all of that can go towards mitigating any issues that we have with this traditional trope. They could go melodramatic with it. Imagine Luther scolding other villains for attempting to uncover Superman's identity. The only thing holding back this incredibly powerful alien is that he labors under the misapprehension that he's a human being. Luther warns that threatening those ties only drives the alien towards becoming the tyrant that they all fear. It's a little like the joke that the supervillains all know Superman's secret identity, but they've all agreed to allow him the illusion of Clark Kent because it keeps him busy working 40 hours a week. Obviously, 
obviously this isn't the case, but there is a kernel of truth in there that it's even within the villain's interests for Superman to have and be Clark Kent. In any case, while I don't have an answer in this circumstance, I think we can file this under commentary and we can look forward to how the filmmakers will tackle this topic and any listener insights or answers that you guys would like to share. Now, speaking of the listeners, let's go to the mailbag. This ant ear asks, did Zod realize he'd lose his powers by making Earth like Krypton? And if he didn't, how would he rule over all those people with powers? Well, yes, Zod knew, but Zod's conception of Krypton was narrow. You've got to consider this. Zod had everything he needed to resume the Kryptonian race, sans a planet, on the Black Zero alone. The only thing stopping him for 33 years? The conviction that natural birth is heresy. He's genetically predisposed and possibly somatically trained to hold that conviction so strongly that he'd rather his species go extinct than to attempt to repopulate through natural birth. Now, does that sound like somebody that is willing to accept a chaotic society of super beings? Let's not forget that he was sentenced for attempting a coup. Those who rebel and betray, they have a tendency to fear betrayal themselves and to worry about traitors in their midst. This is reinforced by the fact that Zod only trusted a total of two Kryptonians and himself to go to Earth and gain access to superpowers. If Zod absolutely trusted his crew, there's no reason he couldn't have drop-shipped them all around the planet to enforce his plan. But Zod would have good reason to doubt if someone like, say, Jack Sir were to taste that power, whether they would cooperate and give it up out of loyalty to his plan. You pointed out the issue yourself. How would you rule over a society of super beings? Whereas with normal beings, the military caste would still be able to control things by force. All right. Zenmu asks, why did it have to be Earth? Why couldn't Zod have terraformed Mars or another planet? And we've talked about this in the past as well, but it's simply because an opportunity presented itself. The Phantom Drive is finite. If the Phantom Drive was an infinitely renewable resource, then Krypton could have stopped mining its core, and it wouldn't have died. So that means that Zod has a limited number of jumps and a limited number of opportunities to use the world engine. Zod had to be confident that it would work to risk expending their finite phantom drive. There were no sister planets, no living colonies, so to our knowledge, nothing has ever been successfully or permanently terraformed. And that means that the parameters for terraforming are far more narrow than detractors who think Zod could have terraformed Mars or any arbitrary rock incorrectly presume. It also means that Zod was predisposed to terraform Earth under any circumstances. And Jor-El knew this. That's why he conveys the plan to Lois even before Zod releases the world engine. Engel shares an insight that it's possible that Superman's invulnerability can be controlled by his will. So if he wants to shave, he simply lowers his force field and becomes like a normal human being. Uh, that's an interesting idea. It's different than tradition, but it could be possible as long as the switch is the only at-will part, meaning that he can maintain his invulnerability even if he's unconscious, to be consistent with the film. We didn't explicitly talk about scaling senses or actions in our series, of powers episodes, but the ability to willfully switch is one way to make a lot of that stuff work. So thanks for sharing the idea. Uh, Godzilla of Steel wants to know if Warner Brothers mandated Snyder to include Batman. He gives the example of Sony interfering with Raimi and requiring the inclusion of Venom. He wants to know if Snyder will be required to have Batman beat Superman and get more screen time. I covered studio interference in a recent blog, but this is the gist. Snyder requires creative control to remove 
remain motivated. He's had it on all of his films except towards the end of Legend of the Guardians, and he never wants to repeat that experience. So part of being convinced that he could tackle Superman was knowing that Christopher Nolan would protect him from studio interference, along with his wife, producer Deborah Snyder. I can't imagine that he'd sign on for three more films, minimum, if he didn't have assurances about creative control. And historically, for better or worse, the WB has proven that they are a hands-off studio with their favorite directors. Just look at the films of the Wachowskis, Nolan, and Affleck. There's also the sting of Green Lantern, and that will remain as a persistent reminder not to attempt to direct from the boardroom or by committee. The WB has put their fate into Snyder's hands, and they know how creative quarrels with directors can sink confidence in a film more than any marketing imposition might improve it. So Snyder is going to have freedom. And he was on board with the decision to have Batman in the film. In a Forbes interview, he explains that they were trying to think of the next great adversary worthy of Superman, recognizing that it was difficult to go bigger than Zod in a planet-threatening alien invasion. At some point, the idea of Batman was pitched, and as we covered in episode two, he serves as a perfect foil to show that Superman is multi-dimensional and compelling in a smaller character-driven story, where the stakes aren't necessarily planetary and and power-based anymore. In a shared universe, really, there's no better way to characterize Superman than as a foil to Batman. And their duality is something unique to the DC mythos, and which has been compelling to this day. They will have to establish that a man in a cowl is a worthy antagonist to and for Superman, so expect him to get his licks in and adjust your expectations if you think otherwise. Making a good film comes first, and that's before Batman fandom and before Superman fandom. Narratively, there is nothing compelling about Superman beating Batman in an obvious fashion, even if it makes for fun YouTube clips. However, in the ways that really matter, expect both heroes to be able to showcase why they're the world's most enduring superheroes. Yes, they're gonna have to make Batman relevant to Superman, but much more importantly, they have to make Superman relevant to the Justice League, and they have to make the Justice League relevant to the world. If Superman is easily defeated or disrespected by Batman, it completely undermines the creative goal of moving towards a league that the world needs and that the audience wants to see. Who needs a league if an ordinary mortal man can do it all? For the same reason, I think any fear that Batman is going to be the thrust of the film is misplaced. Because establishing Batman doesn't establish or legitimize the League. But again, a good film comes first. Batman must and will get great scenes. It would be absurd to make a film that tears Batman down purely in service of Superman fan insecurities. Instead, look for Batman to help highlight all the reasons that the League needs Superman. And, and for Superman to highlight why Batman is the first hero he looks to as his friend. All right, I think I've rambled on long enough. Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network. So here are some promos for the network shows that I suggest you check out if you want to extend your enjoyment of the Superman mythos. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman. 
Golden Age Superman. The Superman Fan Podcast. The DC Comics Presents Show. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. It's Superman, the Schuster Herald Podcast. The Kara's World Podcast. Superman Forever Radio. Superman Lives. Up, up, and away. Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy podcast. The Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen's podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Bragg, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac. I'm Adam. Dave Eunice and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff, and if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful for each and every listener and hope you'll join us at manofsteelanswers.com. That way, if you've got questions you want answered or insights you want to share or commentary to make, you can post in the comments for all your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at mosaic at manofsteelanswers.com. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son.